welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 88, The Renaissance from Europe to England. Welcome everybody to the fifth season of the podcast, and I hope that you've enjoyed the bonus episodes that I've been releasing over the last few weeks. For me, each one was a lot of fun to put together for different reasons, but I did particularly enjoy talking to Yvonne and Aaron about their respective works and interest in the theatre. But now we're back on to the main event, with the Greeks, the Romans, the medieval and the champions of the European theatrical renaissance behind us. This season opens with a shift of location rather than of time, as has been the case before, because season five is going to be all about the English Renaissance theatre. And just to get this out of the way up front, I won't be focusing on Shakespeare yet. He, of course, deserves a lot of attention, and he will get it. But he didn't come out of nothing, and I think it's important that we understand the theatrical landscape he came out of and then worked in before we look at his canon and life specifically, and much else that is associated with him. He will no doubt be mentioned at times by way of comparison with his predecessors and contemporaries, but for more details, there will be a wait. Much as the thought of discussing him and his life and work fills me with some trepidation, I have no desire to avoid him either. But first things first. He created much, and although he was there close to the beginning of the English secular theatre, he was not there right at the beginning. And although he was one of those unique geniuses that suddenly stands head and shoulders above his contemporaries and leads the way, it was also the product of what went before him, of his education that he'd received, of the social and religious milieu of his time, and more, so we need to understand that as best we can. And not insignificantly on that point, we have to understand the idea of authorial collaboration in the theatre, something which began well before the Bard of Avon was collaborating with other writers. But enough of hinting about what is to come. These are most definitely discussions for another day. There we are. That's Shakespeare Parked, awaiting our return in the future. So with that out of the way, we can get on with some proper scene setting for the English Renaissance period. We've already spent a long time in the Renaissance period, and as I covered in the last season, England was not completely isolated from the cultural events on the continent. But there were significant differences in England, and England achieved a pre-eminent position in this period of theatre history, which justifies dealing with cultural events at the time as somewhat separate events. We heard about English visitors to Italy and France enjoying early adventurous tourism, something of the English court interludes that were performed towards the end of the medieval period, the transition of every man from a Dutch morality play to an English version that has survived the centuries, and of visiting English acting troops finding like minds in the Netherlands and the Germanic states. We also heard something of the presence of European actors in England, particularly where Commedia dell'arte was concerned, But beyond that, I deliberately left England as a separate theatrical entity, which was a slightly artificial distinction for the convenience of the narrative, but only slightly. Although we're not moving that far geographically, we will need to move back a little in time, back to the late medieval, in fact, before coming forward again to the High Renaissance, the Reformation and the triumphs of the Elizabethan stage, and I don't just mean Shakespeare, but much more besides. Where there are links back to the continental theatre and the European Renaissance more generally, I'll be pointing them out, and I'm sure you'll be picking them up easily anyway, because there are many points where the two meet. 
That does presuppose that you've listened to season four of the podcast before starting here. That isn't an absolute requirement for an understanding of the English stage of the period, but I would recommend it if only for the general understanding of the European Renaissance as far as theatre is concerned. There will inevitably be some comparing, contrasting and referencing. And within an episode, I'll only give the briefest of reminders, and where it's really necessary, I'll point you back to a specific episode within the podcast catalogue. But that said, if you choose to start here, well, that's fine too. If you did listen to season four, you will certainly notice similarities with the European Renaissance theatre. In the theatre buildings, the structure of the acting troops, the subject and style of plays, the leaning into the works of classical antiquity, the support of the courts and the aristocracy for the theatre, and the expectations, enthusiasm and behaviour of audiences, and in many other ways. But you'll also see that in England, these features often come with a particular style and flavour that is particularly English, and sometimes they are unique to the island. And to qualify my terminology, I'm going to call the theatrical activity under discussion the English theatre, although in practice, for most of the time, we're talking about London theatre. Most of the records from the time concern theatrical activity in the capital, with some lesser but nevertheless interesting detail about the touring groups that travelled the southern half of the country to the Midlands and a few northern towns, but not much further. I don't think there's anyone who disagrees with the idea that even when we put Shakespeare aside for a moment, the English theatre of the Renaissance period deserves special attention, because it is uniquely different from the theatre of the European continental Renaissance. Whereas Italy and France without question produced the greatest sculptors and artists of the period, against which, despite the occasional masterpiece, England has relatively little to offer, only Spain can argue for supremacy with England for theatrical entertainment. Somehow, for all the ties that there undoubtedly were, this damp and misty island on the edge of the continent managed to produce theatrical art that stands apart from the vast majority of the other theatrical efforts of the time. The theatre historian of the mid-20th century, Allardyce Nicholl, noted that English theatre stands apart, and I quote, because it realised a broader spirit and a richer harmony than its companions succeeded in attaining. From my reading of the Continental Theatre, I think this is broadly true. With a very few but very notable exceptions, English theatre manages to become something fiercer and more current and more thoughtful than the offerings from Italy, France or Spain. What I'm going to explore and hopefully show you over the next few weeks and months is why that statement is true, how it was achieved and why it came about. Because we know of the English triumphs of the later Renaissance, it's sometimes forgotten that the early scorecard had England marked down as a slow starter. Before 1560, and arguably even later than that, there was nothing in the English canon to match Ariosto's comedies or the satire of Machiavelli. In 1583, poet, courtier and leading man of letters Sir Philip Sidney wrote an essay of literary criticism, now generally considered the first work of literary criticism, entitled The Defence of Poesy, now more usually updated to An Apology for Poetry or A Defence of Poetry. He was writing in defence of a form that had become less popular since printed books had become more accessible and public taste turned to reading histories and romances rather than poems. As part of this work, he wrote of his complete condemnation of the English stage. He could see virtually nothing of value in it at all, saying naughty playmakers and stage keepers had made it odious. Now, 
Sidney was of a puritanical leaning and would never stoop to writing plays himself, so he had little natural enthusiasm for the playhouses. His apology was most likely prompted by a pamphlet written by Stephen Gosson that was dedicated to Sidney and bemoaned the popular liking for melodrama and vulgar comedy. Gosson, a schoolmaster by trade, had written plays of his own. His objection was to the content rather than the form itself. Dedications in publications were a form of flattery at the time, and usually permission to make such a dedication was sought before the printing was started. But Gosson was either not so courteous or missed his mark completely, possibly both. Sidney seems to have been offended by being associated with the pamphlet, and wrote his defence of poets in general as a response. His overarching thesis is that poetry and poetic language could enhance an understanding of any subject simply by presenting it in carefully composed poetic language. Despite his dislike of plays, we do have a lot to thank Sidney for in the development of the English stage. Through his poetry, he introduced the English to the idea that poetry could be a verbal system used to produce powerful images and imagery, tools that were put to good use in the English drama that was about to burst forth. The theatre became a natural home for poetry and thoughts and ideas expressed poetically. Sidney wrote his poetry to be read, but also to be used to promote visualisation in the mind of the reader. The idea of the mind's eye was strong in Sidney, something that was in fact close to Aristotle's concept of the strength of mimetic art as a poetic form, and a concept that was fully endorsed by the best playwrights of the time. This was dramatic poetry, in the sense that Aristotle meant it, not poetry just to be recited on stage, but poetry that not only enhanced the action of the play, but was an intrinsic part of it. Continental plays were full of poetry, but most of it was there for its own sake, and much was second or even third rate. The best of the English dramatic poetry was very different from the French, Italian or Spanish efforts. This is the period where the English language really came into its own. In the medieval period, the general opinion was that English was a crude and vernacular language that was not able to express finer thoughts. Latin was the language of God and literature, a position that was only partly refined when Norman French became the language of the aristocracy after the Norman invasion in 1066. With assimilation of words from Greek, French and Latin into the English language, it developed over the centuries into one of the richest languages in Europe, and poets of all types began to put it to good use. The admiration for Latin was at least in part due to the fact that it had strict grammatical rules that were clearly systematised and documented, something that the English language had resisted. Before the 16th century, there had been hardly any attempts to regulate English, and when there were, these failed to transfer into the common accepted usage. As late as 1504, poet John Skelton described English as rude and rusty, meaning rustic. It was, he said, a dull language, that meant it was impossible to write ornately in English, a matter that was only complicated by the vast difference in the many dialects used across the relatively small country geographically and across the different classes in society. But by the 1580s this attitude was changing, and writers and educators were becoming more confident in English as a language that could express higher thoughts and experiences. The earliest dictionaries and books on English grammar were being compiled and published. A style of writing developed that was a combination of prose and poetry, effectively prose, but using poetic elements as tools. For example, there might be the use of alliteration, metaphor, simile, 
or contrasting statements within a prose piece in an attempt to heighten the reader's experience. Experiments like this also happened on the stage, so, I would argue, this development of language and the growing confidence of the use of English plays an important part in the overall development of English theatre in this particular period. In his apology, Sidney goes so far as to praise the English language for what it can provide the poet. He said its lack of grammatical rules and its vocabulary, which was of a rich and varied history, could actually work for the benefit of the poet. As I mentioned, Sidney was no playwright, so we won't hear much more from him in the coming episodes, and I'll take the opportunity now to quote his famous statement about the state of English at the time. This applies for playwrights as much as it does for poets. He said, Whereto our language giveth us great occasion, being indeed capable of any excellent exercising of it. I know some will say it is a mingled language, and why not? So much the better, taking the best of both and the other. Another will say, it wanteth grammar. Nay, truly, it hath that place that it wants not grammar. For grammar it might have, but it needs it not. Being so easy in itself, and so void of those cumbersome differences of cases and genders, moods and tenses, which I think were a piece of the Tower of Babylon's curse, that a man should be put to school to learn his mother tongue, but for the uttering sweetly and properly the conceit of the mind, which is the end of speech. That hath it equally with any other language in the world. That was a bold statement for its time, but Sidney was proved right, with a complete flowering of English poetry and prose, both in print and on the stage. It was a dramatic turnaround in just a few decades. The adoption of concepts like that of dramatic poetry was fast once it happened, but it would be wrong to simply agree with Sidney and others and ignore the earlier attempts at writing and staging plays in England, those from the earlier part of the 16th century. With a hindsight that Sidney could understandably not possess, we can see the plays of the early and mid-16th century as valiant attempts to find a theatrical form that worked for the English. I'll be trying to make that case, but I also have to admit that if we look at the state of English theatre before 1580 or so, if we can cut off there without what we know would shortly follow, then English theatre is, for many, at best only unequal to Italian and Spanish theatre, something that had some value, but somehow failed to find a form and subject that propelled it to the realms of great art, an art that could stand beside ancient Greek theatre and hold its own. There are many scholars who have held that there was no equal to ancient Greek theatre until the English Renaissance stage, although, as a rule, they are, of course, talking about Shakespeare in particular. Now, bold as that statement is, it is one that I'm happy to argue for. There was something or some things that were different in England that meant the English stage progressed to the heights it undoubtedly achieved, whereas in Italy it became stunted, in France it never quite developed, and in Spain it came so very close. And yet, the English success seems to be rooted in ground that was not particularly fertile. As I discussed towards the back end of the medieval season, England was relatively slow to come out of the medieval period. Looking at the broad brush of history, Richard III, who reigned from 1483 to 1485, is usually regarded as the last of the medieval kings. Because he is the last of the Plantagenet dynasty and the last of the Yorkist kings, he's a useful bookend for historians. But if we look at the way his successor Henry VII ruled, 
then in virtually everything he did, he too was a medieval monarch. His concern was to repair the realm after the years of the divisions of the Wars of the Roses, a civil war in all but name, and he did that by placating the aristocracy through a system of rewards and benefits, just like the kings before him. His great achievement was to rebuild the treasury and to hold on to that wealth, a task that allowed his son Henry VIII to spend, spend, spend for the early years of his reign, at least until he had to find other ways to generate the needed income. And so we enter one of the most studied periods of history from just about every aspect. Henry and his eight wives and his impact on the unity of Christendom remains a fascination for us to this day. But there is a good argument that he too was essentially a medieval monarch, mostly concerned with establishing his rights as a king and, as he believed himself to be, an emperor who could stand shamelessly beside the French king and the Holy Roman Emperor. It's not for me to get into the details of all that here, but I think it's important to remember that for the first 20 or so years of his reign, which began in 1509, he was a committed Catholic who was looking for ways to unify Christendom through diplomacy and, if necessary, with the sword. This was an era where the medieval cycle play was still a popular and dominant entertainment. Courtly entertainments were short interludes, occasional plays and pageants to act as displays of wealth and power. The Dutch morality play Everyman made it to England in the first decade of Henry's reign, no earlier than 1510 and maybe as late as 1519, but there is little evidence of any new playwriting until the late 1540s, by which time the European Renaissance was well progressed. There was no lack of scholarship in England. Henry himself was considered a good musician and appreciated poetry and romances. He was enamoured of Italian art, but the theatre wasn't the focus for him. Had it been, things would have, I think, progressed differently, with the influence of Italian theatre being much greater in England than it was. But Henry was more interested in the tilting yard and hunting than in the theatre, and things worked out as they did. And this isn't to say that when the influence of the Renaissance did arrive, it was in an unrecognisable form. There were many similarities with the Italian and therefore the wider continental Renaissance. The wonders of antiquity were suddenly available thanks to the new technology of printing, and the playwrights of antiquity were rediscovered as they were on the continent. Plays in Latin were performed at Henry's court, as they were elsewhere in Europe. But unlike in Italy or in the Germanic states, there was just one royal court, and a court that was soon to become the centre of religious turmoil as Henry gave up on his attempts to persuade the Pope to release powers to him and took matters into his own hands. The English Reformation was a tumultuous time, but for theatre it had something of a releasing effect. As traditions were swept away in England, there was space for carefully crafted new thought and discussions. Where France and Spain were trying to hold on to ancient traditions, in England they were let go in a wrench that many found painful, but many others greeted with open arms. The irony is that the competing religious fervours of the Reformation actually left some space for the secularisation of theatre. Playwrights had to be careful, of course. The Reformation and post-Reformation periods were a time when what you believed or refused to recant could lead you to prison, the executioner's block or the stake. But in England, plays could be written that were essentially secular in nature, to a degree that remained unusual in Italy or France. But Henry's efforts were not all about religion. Even before his church reforms crystallised in his mind as a possibility, he was facing off at different times with the Catholic monarchs of Spain and France, 
in displays of medieval kingship at its finest. The religious beliefs were heartfelt and sincere, but that didn't get in the way of wealth, power and supremacy in Christendom. My point can be summed up by saying that England was more forward and outward-looking than either France or Spain, who were clinging to their historic structures within the Catholic Church. That outward and forward look is, I think, reflected in the plays of the time, particularly when we move to the later Renaissance and the rule of Henry's daughter Elizabeth. The Elizabethan era is quite obviously the greatest period for theatre, but again, not just because of the genius of Shakespeare. Even without him, if that's possible to imagine for a moment, his contemporaries and successors hold their own against, if not exceed, the best work of the continental playwrights. The exact reasoning for Henry's actions and how much they reflected the genuine desires for change or not in his people is still debated, but all agree that the course he set the country on was masterfully managed by Elizabeth in her reign, and England was on a path that went a very long way to fulfilling its promise. Plays brimming with that confidence were produced and playwrights were at the forefront of artistic thought and the exploration of what it meant to be a human being in the Elizabethan period. Thoughts that found their release within the new religious framework of the time. Perhaps another factor that played here is something that can still be recognised today in English sensibilities. A scepticism about the culture of continental Europe. When the French, Spanish and Italians watched plays in Latin, they would be in no doubt of their shared Roman heritage and how their Romance languages were all rooted in Latin. Languages that some would say were simply bastardised versions of pure Latin. They had much in common despite differing national interests, but the same was not true in England. Thanks to a complex history of Scandinavian and then more recently Norman invasion, and despite the long Roman occupation, the English saw themselves as very separate from the rest of Europe. They were, of course, physically isolated, which plays a significant part in this, but they saw themselves as culturally distinct too. Their language carried some Latin influence, but more via the Normans than the Romans. The popular foundation myth of the time didn't go back to Rome, whose sons were always seen as occupiers, however much their blood still ran in English veins, but went to the Greek myth and specifically to the fall of Troy. A created myth, no doubt, but it is of these things that national identities are created. So in Italy, the assimilation of works from antiquity was easier because of the proximity of language and heritage to Latin and the Romans. You will probably remember that it was a tragedy that found its way from antiquity to a modern Italian play, somewhat against the general liking for comedies. Sophonisba by Trisano was written relatively early in 1515 and was taken up as the model for tragedy as a piece clearly derived from Greek models via Seneca. In England, work by academically minded students who attempted the same path from Seneca briefly had a voice, but this was soon drowned out by Shakespeare and his contemporaries who drank from the wider pool of classical learning, history and folklore. If the English Senecans had been around perhaps 50 years earlier, the course of English theatre would have been very different, and would perhaps have followed a more generic line taking its lead from Italy. But I'm speculating again, which is fun but not particularly useful. I shall try now to restrict myself to what did happen, and not what might have been. No review that attempts to understand English theatre of the 16th century could be complete without including significant mention of the public playhouses. 
the English Playhouse is perhaps the best-known public theatre building of its period, and its design and location plays a key role in the development of theatre. I don't think that we can isolate the theatre building from the playwrights or from the plays. Each has an influence on the other, and if we tried to decide which came first, we'd be discussing chickens and eggs until the end of time. The English Playhouse was not a completely unique development. There are similarities with the Parisian Playhouse and particularly with the Spanish Corral, but it is uniquely English, and not quite either of these continental versions. Thanks to some contemporary documentation, much study and later reconstructions, we know much about the London Playhouses for sure, and we can speculate with confidence over quite a bit more. There are still gaps in our knowledge, but thankfully, as we move forward in time, the contemporary records are improving, and interpretation gets a little easier. And this applies to every aspect of the theatre, not just to the playhouses themselves. We're just getting to the period where modern English is considered to begin, and, with a little effort, we can read original works without translation, and occasionally with just a little modernisation. Altogether, we can get closer to the people and their works than we have been able to before. And just while I think of it, I should also mention that there is a general agreement with dating amongst historians that normalises the start point of a year as January the 1st, correcting for the traditional early spring start date, so I'll be following that correction as I have done previously. This is a more significant point now, because in many cases we can discuss plays and the actions of those involved in their production in the context of precise dates. In the English context, before this we only had the cycle plays that were developed and altered over decades, if not centuries, with the only sometimes sure point of dating being the point at which they were put into a collection. Coming up, we will have a period where a play can be much more precisely dated by its creation or early performance, which matters because understanding of them in detail often relies on an understanding of contemporary events. These were not plays written in the universal time of the cycle plays, but for the here and now, even when the subject was ostensibly taken from history. That, I think, is one of the most exciting changes that we can see in the plays of this period. As well as the plays, we will also be able to talk more about the actors who performed in them and the troops that they functioned in. The origins of the acting troupe go back as far as they do in Europe, far into the late medieval. But as professionalism developed, the role of the amateur players who were so closely associated with the cycle plays seems to decline. Whereas in Italy and France, amateurs continued to play a prominent role in the presentations at court, in England this is where the professional actor comes to the fore and developed their very own particular craft. The courtly entertainments were less lavish than on the continent, particularly under Elizabeth who kept tight control over court expenses. After a slow start, plays that relied on simple presentation, little costume and the power of the poetry and prose, rather than lavish settings and large casts, became the norm both at court and in the public playhouses. Which is just one of the reasons why the playwright becomes a key figure in the English theatre. As the profession of acting developed, so did England's regulation of actors, which was different from the rules on the continent, and particularly as we get later into the period, there is some fantastic detail available to us about how the troops functioned and how they were regarded as they moved around the country or settled in the London theatres. As with some of the European troops, we can start to get to know the characters, ambitions and motivations of the actors who worked on the stage, still choosing a hard life to fulfil the desires of producing dramatic art. 
And of course, we will get to discuss the plays and the playwrights. For the first time on the English stage, we know more than just the passing detail of a playwright's life. And we meet the authors of plays who are not primarily concerned with religious matters. The early professional stage is notable in England because its primary authors were not clerics or even necessarily devoutly religious. I have the sense that the English playwrights were much more likely to be mavericks of society and anti-clerical in their views than the likes of Ariosto, Calderon de la Barca or Lupe de Vega. But neither is there a playwright who has a close relationship with the state. There's no Socrates or Machiavelli in that sense. Relationships with the state were more arm's length, with the troops looking for nothing more than patronage. Or in some cases, that relationship was clandestine, culminating in the nefarious activities of Christopher Marlowe and a few others. The independence, the unique voice of the English playwrights, even in the early days of the English Renaissance, is noticeable and, I think, not an insignificant factor in the success of English theatre. So I hope you're now poised with me to move forward through this fast-moving, vibrant and exciting period of theatre history. I've tried in this episode to set out my broad view and to describe some of the many things that came together in the 16th century in England that enabled some very special things to happen. This by way of preparing you for some very detailed accounts coming up. We will, in time, get to some very familiar names and plays that you may well have seen and events that will seem at least somewhat familiar to you. If something is not completely new to you, then I hope I will at least be adding more detail and context than you have ever known before. So strap in and enjoy. Next time I'll get our review of the period properly started with a look at the earliest theatre buildings in London and how they were part of changes that were some of the biggest changes in theatre for a millennium. For the first time since the end of the Roman occupation, British theatre had a purpose-built home, and even before that, Other spaces were being put to good use. So there we are, off and running on the English Renaissance Theatre. If you access the podcast via the website, you'll find a new Seasons category on the main menu, and of course, the latest episodes will also appear on the landing page. I've made some updates to the website recently, with new guest biographies and added to the reading list, so do go and have a browse around the site, and let me know if there's anything else that you would be interested to see there. That's all at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com If you'd like more theatre history content, please find the podcast on Facebook and on Twitter and now we're on Instagram too. There's plenty of extra content on Patreon for a small monthly fee. All the links are in the show notes. Most of all, thanks for your continued support listening to each episode. Please do spread the word amongst your friends and anyone you think might be interested. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Mm-hmm.